0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Joint Venture Podcast. Inspiration Insights. My name is Oliver, and on this episode, we are going to take a look at all of the latest announcements from the news this week. And we have with us today Chenwa Chintu, lead author of Inspiration's latest report, Risk Watch for Q1 2023. Hi, Chenwa.
1: Hey, Oliver. Happy to be here.
0: And, as usual, we begin with the news we have with us, Robert Leeming, our news editor, to take us through the week's headlines.
2: Thank you very much, Oliver. Um, first, I want to start in the United States today with um, the um, renewables business Sun Energy that confirmed um, last week that they're set to list on the NASDAQ stock exchange in New York after merging with a, a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company.
0: Now, I thought that the SPAC had fallen out of favour as a method of becoming listed.
2: Well, that is true. SPAC deals, um, which, of course, involve a company merging with the shell business that then goes public, became very popular um, in the pandemic years in in 2020 when they were viewed as kind of offering a quick uh, route to going public. Um, they were especially favored at the time because SPAC listings do not require uh, the lengthy roadshow that often accompanies a, a traditional listing um,
0: so you put a shell company that's basically just a vehicle for investment which can be very open onto yes. a stock exchange and then that company then acquires the much more complicated to regulate thing
2: yes basically the, the shell company goes the public issue. and then the the bigger company merges with the with the shell company. Um, And um, they became especially popular in the EV charging sector, um, a space which um, has often complicated companies that were looking to capitalize on on the success quite quickly. However, the the SPAC bubble began to burst um, kind of in in 2021 when companies that listed using the route often failed to maintain the value on the exchanges that they joined. Um, They also attracted a degree of bad publicity when companies such as WeWork, um, which were on a very weak financial footing at the time, failed to list in the traditional fashion, but then attempted a SPAC as a kind of backdoor to listing, prompting calls for tighter regulation. So yes, they did fall from grace, but Sun Energy's new deal, does go to show that some companies still find the route attractive um, despite the crash and the negative pub- publicity that has ensued. This is largely because um, small companies um, looking to list in a simple fashion can still find it to be quite a quick um, process. So, uh, coming to the details of the deal, um, the, the 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 value of the business was placed at 475 million dollars, and the deal is set to generate around 65 million in proceeds for Sun Sunergy. Um, the agreement is expected to close in the fourth quarter of this year. Um, as things stands, the business um, has developed solar and battery storage systems, largely in Texas, Florida and Arkansas, but is looking to extend more widely using this listing as a base more widely across the United States to other other areas of the country, I think.
0: So, Rob, I gather that you've been speaking to the market and managed to catch up with Investec, is that right?
2: Yes, I was w- at the offices of Investec just, uh, just the other day, and we were talking about... Um, Data centers and how um, a data center being backed by a kind of uh, renewables power purchase agreement um, is a a tool that helps to secure um, debt financing from lenders. Um, The uh, person that I was talking to there, Edward Picard. Um, who's worked on a few of these deals in the past said, for a debt provider in terms of securing financing for a data centre project, it is desirable for data centre developers to do certain things which can enhance their prospect to get funding from lenders One of the key things is for a project to, to procure green energy, often through power purchase agreements with renewable projects It's not always a signed and sealed requirement per se to do this from a lender's perspective, but it is helpful It's also key for the data centre provider to sign a PPA in order to secure more clients, many of which are often focused on their green credentials, clients of course being the main route to the market for data centres. The person that I spoke to went on to say, what you do tend to see in the data centre financings that we have worked on in the UK and Europe is that debt deals have a pricing that is linked to the achievement of certain sustainability key performance indicators. In deals such as these, there is often a series of KPIs, including the procurement of green electricity, if this is met, then debt pricing adjustments can occur as a direct result, representing just one way a debt provider can act to incentivize a data center provider to put a carbon reduction policy on. On the table and of course inspiration has been tracking uh, a number of uh, data center deals this year all across the world and many of them now um, are powered by um, by um, renewable energy some linked to district heating networks um, some getting the power by a virtual power power purchase agreements. Um, So that's a trend that we're seeing. It certainly
0: is. As we've got our um, resident PPA expert Chandwa here, I'm going to put that to you. I'd say this kind of goes along with more or less what we've been saying for the last few years about how data centres are almost exclusively signing PPAs with renewable providers. And I think this all sort of leads into the same trend, doesn't it?
1: Yes, they're very intensive load centres. And to keep up with sustainability targets, it becomes important to sign um, ppas to guarantee that you have access to green electrons or through financial means have access to purchasing um, green electricity via virtual power purchase agreement and this is a similar strategy that sort of hydrogen projects can adopt in the future
0: mm, very interesting how uh, that side of the market is developing so rob there's been quite a few offshore deals as well that we've been covering this week
2: Yes, there's been a a bonanza of um, offshore activities this week. The biggest, by far the biggest, was um, Macquarie Asset Management announcing that they were selling stakes in a series of uh, UK offshore wind farms that are already up and running um, and kind of represented the first wave of of UK offshore development. These stakes in um, the eight projects concerned the list of which I won't read out, but you can f- see on the website, um, are being sold to the UK-based renewables investor Equitix um, for the the, the, the the amount has not been uh, confirmed yet, but it's certainly going to be a multi-million pound deal for sure. When combined together, um, the eight offshore wind farms, which are dotted around the, around the country, um, have a combined capacity of 2.5 gigawatts, making it, I think, the largest... Uh, operational offshore UK portfolio. Um, despite the sales, Macquarie um, and Green Investment Group, of course, will still maintain stakes in four of the wind farms concerned uh, through stakes that uh, are owned by a, a different uh, Macquarie Fund, Energy Funds 1 and 2, um, which both closed several years ago. Th- those stakes will be maintained. The reason for them for this move, um, well, Macquarie's exit um, from these long-functioning projects encapsulates um, the company's intention to keep its eyes firmly fixed on uh, playing a large role in the development of new offshore wind farms in the UK rather than have to sacrifice too much of that concentration uh, on the maintenance of an increasingly bulky um, portfolio. After all, The company is currently engaged um, with work on a series of uh, large new offshore wind farms in UK waters, including, of course, uh, Rampion 2, 1.2 gigawatts, um, West Orkney in Scotland, 2 gigawatts, and the uh, Alter Dowsing offshore wind farm, um, which will be built off the coast of Lincolnshire, uh, which again represents a, a large wedge of potential future capacity. So Macquarie looking to the future there rather than hanging on to the past.
0: And we've seen even more offshore wind news this week from, uh, was it Moray West?
2: Yes, I would say this is the biggest financial clause, offshore financial clause in the UK, um, offshore sector of the year. The 882 megawatt Moray West offshore wind project reached financial clause, um, I think, at the end of last week. And the project is unique in the UK offshore market due to its reliance mainly on corporate power purchase agreements. Um, And the project was backed by several banks. Um, some of the key players in that banking club were MUFG, NatWest, S N B C, Barclays and Lloyds, but there was a whole number of um, banks um, which we well, we haven't got the full list yet, but um, we will have that soon and we'll probably see about 20 also banks on that deal when we do get to see the full list. All the banks though, um, certainly the ones listed, have been involved with uh, financing big offshore wind projects in the UK in the past. So now the financing is in place. Um, work on the project, which will be built off the coast of North East Scotland, will now intensify. Uh, it's been developed by EDP Renewables, Angie, and Ingenitus, um, which together, of course, represent the Ocean Winds joint venture. Um, the project won a contract for difference um, for a third of its capacity in the fourth iteration of the UK's allocation round, uh, which was uh, the results of which were announced last year. So. The money's there. Construction um, now due to start before the end of this year with grid connection due in 2025. But to me, that date sounds a bit optimistic. I would imagine that it might be a little bit later than that.
1: I think that that goes to show um, the importance of diversification of offtake for such big projects. You see, it's backed by several different PPAs, which more likely than not have different terms and different prices. And on top of that, it has a CFD contract for some of its capacity. All of this ensures um, stable income, uh, stable generation of of, of, of revenue to service the debts that have been provided by a consortium of banks. And, um, well, this is just quintessential project finance, really. And this deal is interesting for me because of of that diversification of offtake.
0: Do you think that's a model we're going to be seeing more for the rest of the year as uh, more of the UK uh, allocations uh, reach their financial close?
1: Uh, it's, it's a model that is seen for various big projects um, even in the Netherlands HKz has several several PPAs uh, with various uh, energy large energy, energy consumers I don't think these projects can go ahead without that certainty of, of, of revenue so this this kind of structure is is essential for these large projects especially
0: and I think we've got one more story to finish us off today
1: yes well we've done a
2: lot of offshore we've done Um, data center, so why not? Let's do a little bit of solar. So Excelio has hit a multi-million euro financial clause on a portfolio of three Spanish solar projects. Um, The company secured 102 million um, from a series of banks, including Santander and BBVA. Um, The schemes are located in Extremadura. They have a combined capacity of 147 megawatts. So, again, much with uh, the case with Moray West, with the money in place, the construction will start. And um, I think it's expected that these solar projects will be online in the next couple of years. The news follows last month's significant uh, announcement. The investment firm KKR was selling its stake in Exelio to Brookfield Renewables. KKR sold uh, a 50% stake in the business for an as yet unconfirmed sum. And as a result of the deal, Brookfield now owns Exelio in its entirety. And we'll no doubt be pleased that the company is making leaps and bounds of progress.
0: Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you, Oliver. As mentioned at the top of the show, we have Chen Vachintu with us, the lead author of RiskWatch Q1 2023, Inspiration's latest research report. Uh, we're all very proud of this, and uh, I know an awful lot of work's gone into it. Thanks, Chen, well, for talking about it t- today.
1: Thank you for having me, Oliver. This was a, a, a quite, quite a large collaborative effort between various teams at Inspiration. And this is our third report of the year. So we've been quite busy this year and we're very happy about it. And we're keen to see the traction this gets.
0: Excellent. And we had snippet of this as uh, we had Ashley on last week to talk us through a bit of the data process that goes into coming up with a metrics for the, a report like this. Um, I wondered before we go diving in to that, could you perhaps give your take on uh, exactly how you go about building the, uh, so the analytical metrics and why you make the choice you do when you put these reports together?
1: so what we're looking for with this risk watch report is to find a way to measure um, the political risks um, and financial risks of developing projects in different countries within europe and a good way to do that is to look at macroeconomic variables that are provided by various think tanks around the world the world economic forum well the imf and the world bank um These organizations collect data on countries' economic performance regularly. We can use this to visualize how well a country is performing in uh, certain ways. Uh, Now, the macroeconomic factors we consider are, first of all, the very vanilla ones, um, looking at GDP growth, GDP per capita, uh, annual GDP, and combining that with renewable energy-tailored metrics such as renewable capacity, PPA capacity, and investment into the grid and the efficiency of the grid itself. And when we combine all of that, we can get a, a sense of how easy or difficult it will be to get a greenfield project off the ground in in different countries around Europe.
0: And it's really a full European report. We've got a there's a wonderful graphic at the top of the report of all the different countries uh, that have been assessed, and we've got uh, sort of the top countries and the bottom countries uh, that have sort of been picked out for. Uh, A special focus Uh, I wonder if you could give us the sort of headlines of some of those more interesting countries
1: yes so like I said before the main focus of this report is to visualize or give a good overall picture of the legislative process that goes about uh, developing greenfield projects in different uh, European countries and so looking at the continent as a whole of course there are EU laws which are standard across the continent excluding the UK Uh, But each individual nation has their own different way of doing things. Um, For instance, the Netherlands is quite interesting in that their auction process is very, very organized. The government does various forms of research on their offshore um, sites and winners of these auctions win a fully permitted project. So they don't have to go through all the permitting queues and the grid connection queues. Um, everything is done and dusted by the government and you as a developer can go in and immediately build your project in the uk that's slightly different Uh, winners of cfd rounds um, have a short turnaround time between winning the project and um, getting everything sorted out paperwork wise that's usually about two years in spain uh, they've introduced uh, grid connection auctions and now in poland Um, they have just introduced their very own CFD.
0: Okay, so you mentioned the UK there. I know a lot of our listeners will be in the UK, and that was still ranked very high in the report, uh, despite not having the Dutch system. So perhaps uh, one or two points on uh, what's interesting in the UK market. I know we've talked about this before, but what's going well?
1: Well, what's going well is that the CFD has already been very popular. Um, It's been price-based, which is uh, sufficient, according to many people. But there are some people who... Um, believe that non-price-based criteria should be introduced into the CFD rounds. Um, as we saw happened, I believe, last year in Japan. Um, now the government is considering having non-price-based um, metrics for project consideration in the CFD. Uh, we're yet to see whether that will happen. Um, that will be for bidding round six next year. Mm-hmm. Um, but already there is a good system in place Um for bidders to participate in uh, what is considered a very fair bidding process.
0: I want to go through a lightning round of a few of these. Um, another two countries that I um, picked up from the report and I think are interesting for quite a similar reason. We've got both Germany and Denmark very high, and I think for uh, f- fairly similar reasons.
1: Yes, and what's interesting about these two countries is that their auction mechanisms um, allow for negative bidding. which is quite controversial in the market at the moment. There are not many um, entities or individuals that believe negative bidding is a positive for renewables, and we'll have to see how that works out for these two countries going forward with their upcoming bids.
0: But with their just strong fundamentals and um, economic factors, they've um, remained at the top.
1: Of course. It's still very attractive to build projects in these countries. Uh, Germany is an energy-hungry country, and we saw that with BEWA, Um, and their PPA PPA tender focusing particularly on Germany. Um, So still building greenfield projects in Germany um, is quite attractive because the hunger for offtake is there.
0: Let's take a look at perhaps some of the countries that didn't fare so well in these uh, metrics. Um, I believe that one we were actually expecting to be much higher than it turned out was Poland. Uh, Can you talk us through why uh, Poland ended up being on the lower levels of uh, these metrics?
1: It's not necessarily expected to be much higher, but it is expected to have very high growth potential. Um, It's one of those countries that is being talked about a lot right now and um, is getting a lot of attention for various reasons. Um, They have changed their laws about onshore wind and how far onshore wind farms can be from built up areas. That has not been received particularly well by developers uh, because that limits the uh, areas in which they can build onshore wind farms. However, on the electricity market side, um, they've introduced flow-based market coupling, which allows developers of projects to visualize where um, grid inconsistencies are and where the higher prices are and where they can locate their projects um, for better returns and um, have better operational efficiencies. Um, So in that respect, it has very high growth prospects, but at the same time, it's not as economically strong as, say, the UK or Germany. And so their um, auction mechanism isn't as robust
0: comparatively. Of course, there's one other thing that I think we wanted to uh, touch on briefly, and I think you're working on analysis about this at the moment. Um, uh, We're interested in Serbia.
1: Yes. So Serbia is coming up. Uh, in a future analysis piece and they're very interesting because of their um, net zero goals and the market reforms that are going underway within the country Uh, but very similar to Poland Um, it's essentially new land and developers would like to be the first to build up on the most attractive piece of land with the best resources and with the new legislative processes coming out um, it makes building these projects much easier and faster.
0: So lots of emerging markets to keep our eye on. Serbia possibly fo- following Poland in that way. Um, so as you mentioned earlier, there are obviously huge regulatory factors that uh, would be, I suppose, the main thing that um, divides a lot of these markets from each other. It's the jurisdictions. But uh, there are things in common, uh, including EU legislation. So I wonder if there's anything in particular that you would like to point to that would affect um the EU markets as a whole in the near future?
1: Yes. So the EU has recently released um, considerations for possible changes to um, the electricity market as a whole. And there are two things that are of particular importance, um, Well, which I find interesting, and which are of particular importance to our risk watch. And that is promoting PPAs and reducing barriers. And uh, what the... Proposed legislation entails about this is that um, financiers and developers um, and governments, more importantly, um, should introduce um, systems in place such that uh, the credit risk of off-takers is minimized, and they can continually sign PPAs. And the market for PPAs um, is it grows larger than just the the energy hungry um, big balance book um, off taker. Um, the other one is to introduce um, two-way contracts for difference across the board. Now, this is already done in the UK. Um, currently, they're one-sided in Germany and in Portugal. Um, but having two-way CFDs... Um,
0: Just quickly, what does that uh, mean for people who are
1: So the, the two-way CFD is a contract between um, the renewable project uh, or the generator of electricity and a public utility. There's a strike price which is flat and as the spot spot price fluctuates, um, revenue um, is sent to the generator or to the public body uh, depending on whether it falls above or below the strike price. Now this uh, limits the amount of profits that a project can make but it also shields the project from uh, revenue that could be lost from poor performance.
0: But obviously means that they can't take the full benefit of high prices, should that be what happens.
1: Yes, so they can't take the full benefit of high prices, but at the same time it guarantees um, uh, long-term revenues on on a stable basis. Um, To wrap it up, we have very positive uh, legislation coming out on EU level, And we have various means of uh, approaching renewables development in different countries. And we've explored this at length in our report. And we've also released our um, leak tables on our website um, to give a brief overview of our results. Uh, We're very happy with what we've done. And um, we're very excited to see how the market receives it.
0: Yes, it's a fantastic report. Uh, You will be able to find that in the show notes to this episode and on the Inspiration website, as usual, along with all of our other news and analysis. Thank you so much, Shenmah, for talking us through that today. It seems like this report has really got an awful lot of detail about all these different markets, but if you would have to sum it up into one thing, what would you say is the key thing which makes a market attractive right now?
1: Uh, It's auctions. So auctions are... Um, a very popular way of getting projects off the ground. And if you have a very good auction system, auction mechanism in place, um, then a lot of people would jump on, on, on that bandwagon. And so really, the Risk Watch also explores the different auction mechanisms. And that's what I would say is is, is ideal. Thank you very much, Chandwa. Uh,
0: that is it for today. We will be back again with even more, as usual, next week. I'd like to thank once again... Robert Leeming for the news coverage, and Chen Bacintu for the analysis and report. Thanks, guys. For Thanks for having us, all Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. Goodbye.